I was thinking this week that uh, that failures can come in very surprising, sometimes startling, even sometimes sort of scary ways. I heard the story of a preacher who went to buy a horse and he was buying a, a horse from this other Christian man who just lived down the road from him. And he went, so he went to look at the horse. He loved the horse. But the man who he's buying it from said, but you need to understand this horse has only ever been around Christians. So he doesn't know normal commands. The only commands he knows is amen for stop and praise the Lord for go. Preacher thinks, okay, you know, I guess I can handle that. So he buys the horse and he's riding the horse home and the horse just starts galloping away and he's right to the precipice of this cliff. And so the preacher starts yelling, whoa, 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 whoa. And just as they're about to get to the cliff, the preacher remembers, oh yeah, amen. So he yells, amen. And the horse comes skidding to a stop and the preacher goes, oh, praise the Lord. And there goes the horse. So our failures can uh, come in all kinds of uh, surprising and startling ways. But I know that in a room like this, that lots of us carry around very serious failures. Um, In a room like this, there has to be people who are divorced or people who have committed some sin that maybe the effects still linger or at least you you still feel the pressure of it or maybe some guilt or if nothing else, regret about a family situation, maybe a, an estrangement with a brother and sister, a neighbor, a, a child, friends, even maybe just goals that were unmet. Maybe you look back and think, gosh, I didn't really go for it. If I had done this or I had done that. So lots of us have really serious failures that we're dealing with. But here's the deal. Sin is simply a universal fact. It is just a universal fact of human existence. This is why doors aren't enough. Have you ever wondered why doors aren't enough? Do you have to lock them? You deadbolt them? I used to have to go to New York City a lot for work, and you go to a New York City hotel, and you might have four locks on the door. Why aren't doors enough? Because sin is a universal human fact. This is why you can't just pay for a bus ride. You have to get a ticket. You ever wonder that? Why do I have to get a ticket? Why can't I just give that guy a buck? But you have to get a ticket. And not only that, somebody has to check the ticket, the bus driver, the subway system. Why? Why isn't your dollar enough? Because sin is a universal human phenomenon. This is why we can't just have laws. We have to have policemen, prosecutors. It's not enough for a woman to say no. She has to carry mace. Why? Because sin is a human phenomenon. It's not enough anymore to simply have an identity. If you're smart, you have life lock or something like it. Why? Because now people even steal your identity. Because sin is this human universal thing. Now, unfortunately, our reading in Hebrews this morning taught us that everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, I know this is not a very popular idea, and uh, any preacher these days sort of shudders to bring this up, but the truth of it is we will give an account. Uh, But don't worry, this is not going to devolve into a a nasty uh, talk on hell and, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God or something, because I'm not sure that that's even the best way to approach this. If you think, well, I'm going to have to give an account, what does an account suggest? It suggests something that exists previously, right? It suggests like a pattern 
uh, a hope, um, something that somebody had in mind, an intention. And so if that's like my hand, at some point, we're going to have to give an account as to, well, how well did we match up to that or not? Now, I guess some other morning we'll talk about heaven and hell. But for now, we just want to think, well, what is it that God had in mind when he said that at some point, when it's all said and done, that we will give an account as to how well we lined up with his story? Now, what I want to do this morning, this will be fun. All of you get your uh, order of service out, please. And if you look right in the middle, you'll find our prayer of confession. And what we're going to do for a few minutes this morning is we're going to discover the practices for trusting God in our failures within the prayer of confession that we do together every week. Uh, I've just finished writing another book for InterVarsity that's called Giving Church Another Chance. And basically what I do in this book is I introduce people to the idea of the spiritual practices of church and how doing what we're doing here week in and week out is actually the path or the roadmap to the spirituality that so many millions of people say they're seeking but can't find it somehow in church. And actually in these spiritual practices that we're doing, if we can see them not as just like some weird ancient thing, but actually a practice that we enter into self-consciously seeking our own spiritual transformation as we do it, you will find that these prayers and these things have not been around for sometimes 500 years, sometimes 1700 years. They haven't been around and being used by Christians for no reason. They actually in millions and millions, in hundreds of millions of people's lives, praying these prayers, saying these things, has enabled, facilitated, and empowered an actual authentic life in Christ. If you were to ask some, just take a very famous person like a Mother Teresa, if you were to ask her, Mother, how do you explain your life? She would say, well, there's some, there was some linkage for her between Mass, she was a Catholic, between mass and the poor. And, and for her, that was such an essential link that she could have never thought of it in being any way separated. Same thing with Mother Day, uh, with Dorothy Day, the, uh, the founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. These people, and I could go on and on telling you hundreds of stories where people who live this amazing spiritual life for the sake of others because of it flowering out of these spiritual practices. So if you got your prayer of confession in front of you, we're just going to kind of quickly go through it um, uh, kind of phrase by phrase. First, it says we have sinned. Now, again, that's one of those words that you sort of use with trepidation these days, because in, an, in a society, in an atmosphere in which there's so much moral relativism, like what is sin? Well, a few months ago, I was on a Southwest airline flight going somewhere, and I don't drink, but the airlines always give me free drink coupons. And so literally, up last week, I was on a flight home from that went through Vegas, and uh, they were looking for drink coupons. I literally gave away like 40 or 50 drink coupons because I never used them. So the whole plane was like, thank you, Todd Hunter, you know, because it had my name on all the free drink coupons. Well, all right, so one week, one week I'm getting on this uh, plane, and, and I don't know, um, these two sort of like hiker, can you picture like stereotypical hiker types, you know, with the shorts, with all the pockets. And, and it was like a 28-year-old a guy and a, probably about a 28-year-old girl. They weren't married. It was obviously they weren't even together, but they both had been drinking. And I don't know why, it's so stupid. They went to buy a beer and it's like five bucks for a beer. And I said, oh, don't do that. I got free drink coupons. 
And so I got out of, you know, the overhead bin and got my free drink com- coupons and gave them to them. Well, they got so rowdy that, like, the flight attendants were talking to them. Well, they got into this big discussion about sin. Now, I have to confess, on an airplane, I'm one of those very private people. Like, I'm not a talker. And when people talk loud about around me, I get so uptight. It's like a Seinfeld episode, you know. It's like loud talkers. And so I'm a very quiet person. And so I'm sitting there, but you, you can't help but overhear what they're talking about. And finally, this, this young girl goes, well, I know what sin is. This is an absolute true story. She said, I know what sin is. Sin is when I do something that violates who I really am. And this, God is my witness. She then slaps my left leg and goes, so what do you think sin is? And I'm like... So I said, well, um, and uh, went on. But my, my, my point is that it's not intuitive these days what exactly sin is, except for our prayer of confession tells us, at least it gives us two really big hints, that we have sinned by what we have done and by what we have left undone, which teaches us that sin can, A, be a shortcoming, like a lapse or... Um, well, actually, the, the, the primary Greek text, Greek term for sin is hamartia, and it, and it means to miss the mark. So, so think of it this way. Uh, picture the, the cross up there, and like let's say that's the mark, that's the bullseye, that's the thing we're all trying to hit, and the thing to which we have to give an account. So the Greek term hamartia means to be living a life that's pointed in some other direction. It's offline. It's not in alignment. It's not plumb. That's what the Greek term means. It means to do to be heading in a direction that misses the mark. And that we so we can do that in this first sense of sin in in a way that sort of just elapsed. It's missing the mark. But there's also a more positive or sort of assertive way of sinning. And the Hebrew terms for this, they pick this up more. The Hebrew terms for sin are more like transgressing. Uh it means to go your own way, to choose your own path. There's more of a sense of deliberateness to it because, you know, God was so close to his people and he had made his intentions so clear to them. Well, of course, they were going to have to give an account. I mean, he was literally with them by, you know, a fire and pillar and the Ten Commandments. And, you know, just think of all the ways in which God was so proximate to his people. And so when they transgressed, there was there was sort of a deliberateness to it. And this ancient prayer picks this up, that we have sinned by both what we have done and what we have undone. And of course, our passage from Isaiah this morning taught us that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And and of course, then the writer of Hebrews picks this up and says, yeah, and we will give an account for turning to our own way for our failure to be human as God intended. See, this is kind of what's gone wrong. You know, I remember when I first got converted, Debbie and I, in the mid-70s, there were a lot of Christians who were sincerely saying, why do we have to stop smoking dope? I mean, the Bible says God gave us every green herb. This is just my favorite green herb. And of course, these days, you can just say, oh, my knee hurts. Um, I need some pain, you know, medication. And you go to some little shop down in L.A. and get whatever you want to, you know, cure your pain. And so... You know, you think, okay, so like, what's so bad about that? Or I've had a lot of young people say to me, sincerely say to me, and they're being sincere. Why does God care what part of my body touches somebody else's body part? Like, 
What and like, where do you draw the line? And like, what's the big deal? Like, people are starving in Africa. Why does God care about what we're doing in so and so's apartment? And they literally mean it. They don't get it. They don't get that there's something going on. And here is the key to any kind of sin. Why does it matter that I don't pay attention to the lock on your door or the lock on your car? Why does that matter? Because I'm supposed to be serving you, not taking from you. That's the account that we are going to have to give an account to. Not did you smoke dope? Like, come on, you think God's up in heaven, like pacing the golden streets going, gosh, darn it. If I could just get those guys to quit smoking dope, you know, the cosmic things would just come together as if that's God's biggest problem. That people don't know what to do with their bodies or, or, you know, they're faking a little glaucoma to get some dope. I mean, I don't think it's God's biggest problem. What God's up to, you have to go way back to the beginning of the story and ask, why did God create humans? And if you don't have an understanding of that, then sin remains meaningless. This is why sin is meaningless. I don't think that it's so much postmodernism or postmodern theory or or this giant relativism that exists. I know it exists. I'm not denying that. But I don't think that's the fundamental problem. I think that's a symptom. The fundamental problem is we have lost the intention of God for humanity. And without that, sin makes no sense. We're all just sort of finding our own way. But if you find that, oh, the son of man did not come to what? Be served? but to serve and give a life, give his life a ransom for many. And if you're going to come follow me, if you want to sit at my right and my left, that's what you're going to do too. So you see, sin only has any meaning within a context. You take a term, a, a proposition like sin, and you tear it out of its story, it quickly becomes meaningless. And we have torn it out of the story. And now it just sort of floats out there as some sort of proposition that everybody gets a shot at. Well, all you got to do is take that concept put it back in its story and realize that what Jesus came to do was not so much save people from hell. Although, again, I'm not not saying anything about heaven or hell. I'm not denying anything. I'm simply saying I think sometimes we've made it all about that and have forgotten that it's actually about a life. Jesus didn't say the Son of Man came to find his way to heaven and take a bunch of people there. Here's what I'm saying to you. Heaven in our story is not the goal. Heaven in our story is the destination. We're all going there. The goal is spiritual transformation into Christ likeness. Why? Because it's only in Christ likeness that we can live a life of serving and not being served. So if I'm taking what's in your car or I'm I'm not listening to you, ladies, if you say no and making you use your mace, it's a failure to serve you. It's not a failure about what part of my body's touching yours. It's a failure of not acknowledging the holiness, the goodness, the greatness of one of God's creation and using her or using him. That's the failure. And I'm, I'm just suggesting to you that sin is not going to make any sort of quick comeback in understanding unless and until we can recapture the story out of which the concept of sin emerged. Now, this is very obvious. You know the story in uh, Luke 24, when Jesus has been crucified and a couple of his followers are confused about it, right? And they start walking away and they're on this famous road to what? Emmaus. And Jesus comes alongside them and he starts explaining to them the story. But notice he doesn't say, look, here's where I'm going. You're on this road to Emmaus, which is which in the biblical geography is almost 
antithetical. It's almost 180 degrees in the wrong way. So they're living, they're going in this totally different way. He doesn't come and say, now you guys are on the wrong road. As if it's some sort of moralism. Rather, he comes and he starts telling them the story. Oh, you've forgotten that the Son of Man had to come and die. You forgot those Isaiah passages we read this morning. You forgot that this was God's plan. And he retold them the story and said, and it's through you whom this story is going to happen. Remember, he said to him, them, and you are my witnesses. And you're and the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come on you, meaning and it's through you. Whom this story is going to unfold. And so, see, when Jesus comes to save people, <coughs> it includes let me put it this way. It includes your eternity. Sorry. It includes your afterlife, but it cannot be reduced to it. I need to say that again. When Jesus comes to save you, it includes what will happen to you when you die, but it cannot be reduced to it. And see, what we've done so often is we've taken the message of the gospel and we've made it only and all about something that happens to you when you die. No, just think about it and you'll, you'll, I think, immediately see that I'm right. One of the most famous Christian bumper stickers says, you can all say it with me probably, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Really? That's it? That's the whole story? You get forgiven and then what? You sit around bored for the next 40 or 50 years? Making, you know, getting up to go to church at nine o'clock in the morning. Sorry, by the way, we'll try to get later sooner. But, you know, you get up at nine, you you get here at nine o'clock in the morning. And so like what? But you see, if that doesn't emerge from within a story, if you're not here week in and week out to say, you know what, Lord, I have sinned by what I have done and by what I have left undone. And I'm not happy about it. I want to give an account now. Meaning, I want to I want to see where the gaps in my life are now. You see, that's what the prophets did. The prophets of Israel, both the minor and the major prophets, prophets simply saw the gaps. Here's the target. Here's where Israel was going. And the prophets saw the gaps and they called Israel back to alignment. And in that sense, that's why people said of Jesus, oh, you're a prophet. When people said of Jesus, oh, you are a prophet, that was not a statement about his divinity or lack of his divinity. They weren't saying, oh, you're a prophet, but not God. That wasn't even on their radar screen. They just knew that he stood in this long tradition of people who saw the gaps in Israel's life and called them to a kind of alignment to God's story. And in that sense, they were giving an account. So when Jesus saves people, he not only saves them from hell, but he puts them back into this story. Well, you know, all throughout the Bible, again, is this term that, you know, none of us like using today is the term sinners, right? And if you've been reading the Gospels lately, the word sinners is everywhere. And often it's used with, uh, with reference to Jesus that he what? Ate and drank and hung out with sinners. Now, who were these sinners? Well, one way to think about it is uh, an old Christian. I think he got into like his late 80s. I mean, he was really old. And, and was finally dying. And so he calls for his lawyer and he calls for the local state representative. And they come to his bedside and he takes them each one by the hand. And there's a few awkward moments. And finally, the lawyer says, Mr. Brown, why did you call us here? And Mr. Brown says, 
Well, Jesus died between two sinners and I wanted to go out the same way. So. So, you know, what are <laughs> somebody explain it to you later? Um, and we love lawyers and politicians here. We're just playing. Um, but the point here is that the sinners in Jesus's day, again, it wasn't so much that. Did you know that so-and-so is an alcoholic? It wasn't like that. Did you know that so-and-so just got out of jail? It wasn't like that. The sinners were the outcasts. They were a people who were seen to be like of another kind in that sort of despicable, icky, they got cooties, we don't like them sort of way, which this was the tax collectors. These were the prostitutes. These were people who were like a class apart. Now, I don't say this to make any of us feel guilty. That's not, I never will ever try to intentionally make you feel guilty. But just as an example, this is where the church in the early days of the AIDS crisis missed it so bad. Because they were classic. We'll never see anything again in our life that is more classic to what the New Testament meant by those sinners. And and we just missed it so bad. I mean, so did early Israel. I mean, we had a long line of us missing it. But that, I think, will help you um, have an idea for why Jesus was always near them and in proximity with them and in solidarity with them. But it says that Jesus came and he ate and drank with sinners. But think with me for a moment. And these are never tests. It's just that I like to think you're thinking with me when I'm talking. So think with me here for a minute. Uh, what else does it say about Jesus? That Jesus came to what sinners? Jesus came to save sinners. What does that mean? Well, we've already said he came to bring them into alignment. And part of bringing them into alignment meant you fit with me. Levi, come on, you fit with me. Zacchaeus, come on, I want to eat dinner with you. Um, women were some of his most faithful followers. Um, when blind Bartimaeus excluded from his community because of the kind of blindness he had was sitting on the curb calling out and, and Jesus' own followers were missing the point and said, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. What does Jesus say? No. What does he want? Find out what that guy wants because he's one of these outcasts. He's one of these sort of class apart and I've come to save them. Now again, let me say that saving includes going to heaven when you die, but it cannot be reduced to it. What Jesus was saying to that woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, Blind Barimaeus, uh, Levi, Matthew, Zacchaeus. He was saying, you have place in my reality. And so the saving includes heaven, but it includes a reality now that you get to be with me now. You get to be one of my people. To me, you're not one of society's outcasts. To me, I formed you. Come on, get this. Blind Bartimaeus crying out on the curb, everybody else ignoring him. And the man who created him and his eyes does not see him as a social outcast. He sees him for what he can be. He doesn't see in this little Jewish tax collector up a tree, this thief. He created Zacchaeus. He knows what Zacchaeus can be. And he says to me, you come into my reality. You're no longer one of these one offs. You're like right in the center of what God's doing. And that's what it means when Jesus says that he came to save sinners, those who were missing the mark. All right, we've got to hustle here a little bit now. Next, our phrase says, we've sinned against you. 
That is to say that sin is personal. And again, if we're going to recover sort of against the onslaught of relativism and relativistic morals that are happening us around here, we're not only going to have to recapture the story, but we're going to have to recapture the personal element of this, that we have sinned against God. How? Well, by these thoughts and these words and these deeds, as we said, by things we've both left undone and have done. He says here, we say here next, we have not loved again the personal you with our whole heart. And this is simply a statement of we know the great command to love you with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our social self, all of our embodied self, all that it means to be human. We just simply acknowledge that we've not loved you with our whole heart. And now the great commission comes into play and we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. The story of the, um, the, the man on the side of the road, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not a moralism. It's not something that should be taught across the street as, you know, you should be good to your neighbors. Here's what that story is about. That story is about this. Love and service trumps religion every time. That's what that story is about. What's that story say? You know, the priest and the Levite come walking by and they won't and they go to the other side of the street. They won't go near that crumpled body. Why? Because the text says that they left that man beaten half dead. So he looked like a corpse on the sidewalk. And a good Jew knows what? I can't go near a corpse. So these two Jews are thinking they're doing right. They're thinking they're in alignment with what it means to be human and especially God's special humans. And so they cross the street. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not a nice little moralism to be taught in fifth grade Sunday school across the street. It's a story that says to serve others always trumps religion. Every time. If ever you're confused about sort of the precepts of my religion versus serving someone, our gospel reading said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's what those guys were missing, and that's what Jesus was trying to teach them. That your religion, in your case, guys, he was saying, it's your religion that's taking you off track. Not that you're smoking dope or trying to have sex with somebody. It's your religion that's taking you off track. And he was making them give an account for a misunderstanding of their religion. And so we say next, we're sorry. That is to say, we regret our choices. We're unhappy about it. We want to move away from who we are and what we're doing. And you need to know that the Bible and the spirit of God and the historic community is all on your side there. Um, you may remember that passage in First John where, where John says, I write this to you to guide you out of sin. And again, that doesn't mean dumb little moralisms. It's that idea of alignment again. I'm writing this letter, John says, to help this community figure out how to align themselves with what it means to be human in God's intention, which, oh, by the way, includes all the little things we do to not do that. And so it says, then we repent. And repent translates the Greek term metanoia. And noia is the basic Greek uh, cognate for thinking, for um, cognition, for mental energy, mental work. And meta is a prefix, means something like again. And so to repent means to think again. Having seen the bullseye, and having seen where your life is, consider that. That's simply what metanoia means. And so repentance, again, it may include weeping in an altar, but it cannot be reduced to that. Repentance is actually a lifestyle. It's actually a journey. 
It, it, it may involve weeping, but it may involve laughing. It's a journey of seeing, oh, this is where my life is out of alignment. And then I just choose, having seen that gap, to reconsider everything, to review all my plans for living in light of what it means to be human according to God's intention for human. And so then we say, forgive us. And we won't look at the prayer of absolution, maybe another week, but the prayer of absolution that I say over you later says, what? God, forgive you. We say, help us to delight in your will. And I say, and may God strengthen you in all goodness. We say, next, look, help us to walk in your ways. And I stand and say, yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit. May that be the case. We then say, and all this to the glory of your name. And I say, yes, and may you have an eternal kind of life. Now, our Bible says that Jesus came to call sinners into this life of humanity as God intended, which is essentially marked by serving others. What would that be like? I mean, am I the only one who's ever wondered what that would be like? I remember when Debbie and I first got converted and I was 19, I think Debbie was 20, something like that. And I remember thinking, man, if I really go for it, God's going to make me marry the ugliest girl there is. Right? Did you ever think thoughts like that? Or man, if I really give God my life, he's going to like make me go to Africa or something. Like, you know, that's the worst thing that could happen to somebody. Right? Am I the only one that ever thought those kind of thoughts? Come on. Or, or I wonder, can I really do this? Or like, will this ruin my life or whatever? Well, Jesus actually answers the question and we're done. At the end of Matthew 11, Jesus is saying to his disciples, come follow me. And here's what he says it will be like. This is Matthew 11, the message. Are you tired? Jesus said to his first followers. Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me, Jesus said. Get away with me. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, Jesus said, and work with me and watch how I do it. And this is maybe my favorite sentence in all the message. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. What would it be like if I really bet it all on Jesus this morning? What would it be like if I really just said, I am going to be a follower of Jesus for the sake of others? Here's what it'll be like. You will find for the first time ever the unforced rhythms of grace. Jesus said, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, Jesus said, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So what happens if you see the target and you see a gap and you hear God calling you to repent? What will it be like? Unforced rhythms of grace, free and light living in God. That's his call. So moving away from sin, it's not a drudgery, it's humanity as God intended. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.